So I actually want to start by telling you guys about our, our bedtime routine at this stage of family life involves a lot of focus on the bedtime story. The bedtime story is critical for peace and tranquility in our family because kids got to get to bed, right? And for Everett, the, the routine is, is very set. So we, we get them dressed and teeth brushed and all that. We go and sit on the toy box and we have a little lamp on and he gets to pick the story. And Everett's, he's three, almost four. Most of what he picks these days is out of a compilation book of old Disney stories. Uh, it's kind of like the, the brief version of every Disney movie you've ever seen. And four out of seven nights of the week, he picks Peter Pan. Peter Pan is his go-to story. So we read through uh, the Peter Pan story. At the end of that, Everett gets to turn off the light because he, he really wants to do that. Then Everett gets to race me to his bed, and he always gets to win. Um, peace and tranquility in the family, right? And then I, I get in bed with him and will lay with him, and he'll turn to me and he'll say, Daddy, tell me a story about Peter Pan. <laughs> and, and we get to repeat the story uh, about Peter Pan, but I get to be the narrator. Most of the time, when I'm repeating the story, he doesn't just want me to tell it how it is. He wants to be in the story, right? And so he, he wants to be Peter Pan, which means I get to be Captain Hook, um, and his dream is that we would ha- be in an, engaged in some epic sword fight for the rest of our lives, I think. Um, but it's so interesting because uh, I think what I see in my son is something that we all have in all of us to some extent. It's this desire to be a part of a story that's bigger than ourselves. We don't just want to hear good stories or watch good movies. We want to live in a compelling story right? So Everett, he gets that out at this stage of life uh, by having me retell the story with him as a part of it. When we read the scriptures, this same principle applies. We're not just given the Bible so that we can read about it and know things about God so we can pack our head with information. Um, I was the best as a kid at knowing the Sunday school answers, but um, I hate to break it. Some of you, this is going to be bad news. That's not why we read the Bible, just so we can know the answers. It's a story that we're called to participate in. We have a part to play. And whenever we read a story in Scripture, whenever we read a passage in Scripture, one of the ways we can encounter God in that is by asking, where am I in the story? We're going through a series right now called The Road to Resurrection. Uh, We're following the final events in Jesus' life as he goes towards the resurrection. Um, Of course, Easter is coming. You heard about that in the announcements. We're excited, springtime Easter, and that's great. But the road to resurrection is not just a nice, happy, quick trip to the top. The road to resurrection actually is a descent down to the cross. And it's only when we go with Jesus to descend all the way to the depths of the cross that then we can experience the fullness of God lifting us up in the resurrection. There's a guiding verse out of Romans that we're using for this series, Romans 6, verses 4 and 5. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him 
in a resurrection like his. So we have to go through the cross, and there's something, an experience for us to have in approaching the cross so that we can then experience the resurrection with Jesus. The cross is important, and, and then if you, if you look at the gospel narratives, they actually give quite a bit of space to the events leading up to the cross. And so we're going through these events, and I think we just have to acknowledge they're a little uncomfortable sometimes. It's not the happiest part of the story, um, but it's, it's almost like if you've ever had a funeral you were going to go to, and you knew that you needed to go, and you maybe even wanted to celebrate the life of that person, but you would rather have avoided the heartache and the hardship, the, the, the harder emotions that come with that. It's, I think it's kind of like that. We're, we're sometimes resistant to look at all the events leading up to the cross and look at the cross itself, but I think it's valuable to give that time. So we're going to look at another piece of that story today. And what I want us to do is to ask the question, where are we in the story? What does Jesus have to teach us through these events? More than just packing our head with facts and information, how can we let this be a story that, that, that God uses to shape us in the image of Christ? So would you pray with me before we read the scripture this morning? Lord, open us up to whatever it is you would teach us today. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our lives to you. Uh, come and teach us and refine us so that we could become more like Christ and draw near to Christ ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up in Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So but before we keep going on, I want to remind everyone what's happened in the preceding couple chapters. We've had the upper room experience. That was the first week of this series. Um, and Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, which led us to the Garden of Gethsemane and that agonizing time of prayer before Jesus is arrested and betrayed by Judas. Then, last week, Tom talked about uh, how Jesus was put on trial in a religious tribunal at night in secret. He's accused of blasphemy. And they basically all decide, yes, he has blasphemed. He has claimed to be God and is worthy of death. And then we cut over, Tom did this at the end of his sermon yesterday, cut over to Peter, who denies Jesus before the rooster crows in the morning. And now we arrive here. And what this is, uh, this is there is those same religious leaders, and it's not another trial. It's really after they've decided what, that he is guilty of, of blaspheming, of claiming to be God, they're deciding that they want to do something about that. Now, now, what's interesting, they could decide that if he has blasphemed, he could be um, killed according to their law, that he could be stoned to death. Uh, at this point in time, the Romans were the only people that could sentence people to death because Rome occupied this whole area. But certain vigilante acts of justice they would kind of give the side eye sometimes. We know this because Stephen the martyr is accused of blasphemy and is stoned to death in Acts chapter 6 and 7. But it's interesting. They don't, they don't decide to take care of Jesus this way. It's not just Jesus that the religious leaders are afraid of right now. It's not just Jesus that bothers them. It's the fact that he has a bunch of followers. 
And so if you don't just want to kill the leader, but you want to intimidate the followers so they stop following, you do a, a big, public, humiliating execution that would force them to deny Jesus forever. So they bring him, and they hand him over to Pilate. Interestingly enough, Jesus predicts this. Earlier in Mark 10, he says to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That, that's already happened. Then they will condemn him to death. So the teachers of the law have already condemned him to death. And now we have the part that's, that's happening in 15.1. And we'll hand him over to the Gentiles. They hand him over to Pilate, and what Jesus has predicted comes true. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. So it's interesting that the Jews, the Jewish leaders, have accused Jesus of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. But when they hand him over to Pilate, Pilate doesn't ask him, are you claiming to be God? Because that actually wasn't a crime in Roman law. Uh, if they wanted the Roman system to deliver a, a death sentence to him, they had to find the charge in the Roman code of law that they were going to try him for. And it's not illegal to pretend to be God in the Roman <laughs> code of law. It is illegal to, to claim to be a rival king because that was like insurrection. That was, uh, that was something that would be a threat to the imperial system, to the empire. And so it seems like the Jews in their planning have cooked up uh, a way to get Jesus the death sentence. They're going to um, tell Pilate he's claiming that he's, that he's our king. So Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And there's a little bit of a slur there, too. That the correct term would be king of Israel. King of Jews was, was kind of a, a derogatory way of saying that. And Jesus, the amazing thing is he doesn't fight back. He just says, you have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. And so the, the chief priests here are trying kind of a scattershot approach. Uh, as many different accusations as they can, they just fling it all on the wall to see what sticks. And they're hoping that just something will convince Pilate that this guy does not need to live anymore. And Pilate seems to be concerned Jesus is not defending himself, and so he even asked Jesus, are you going to say anything? Like, they're accusing you of so many things. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So Pilate was amazed because Jesus did not defend himself. It seems that he didn't even try. This reminds us of Isaiah 53, where we're told about a suffering servant that will come to bring salvation to Israel. Of that suffering servant, we're told, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so it's, it's clear for us, we can see that Jesus knows this is an incredibly important part of his purpose, and he, he willingly continues going towards the cross. The rest of the people, they don't understand that. And so at the end of that trial, he basically is, has doomed himself because 
uh, he did not defend himself. After that's over, we, we come to another scene where Jesus is in Pilate's hall with a crowd. And here's some of the backstory of that. Now, it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So there's an interesting backstory that sometimes Pilate would release a prisoner to keep the peace. That was something occasionally, I guess, he would do. We're also told about this guy, Barabbas. He was in jail because he was part of an insurrection. He tried to overthrow the Roman occupiers. And he murdered someone. So he is rightfully in jail. and That's all we know at this point. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And so they're not asking for anyone in particular at this point. They're just saying, hey, Pilate, uh, would, you, would you do that thing you do where you, uh, where you release a prisoner? So Pilate takes this opportunity to suggest that maybe Jesus would be the right prisoner to release. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. So what's interesting here, you know, Pilate suggests that Jesus might be the one they want to have released. And he does it because he knows that the chief priests are envious. It's a self-interest in the NIV and some other translations, the word envy is used. They're envious because Jesus is stealing away their followers. They do not like that. And so there's a couple ways to look at this. Pilate could be saying, well, maybe Jesus isn't really guilty, and so um, maybe he can be released. That would be generous, I think, to, to, to assume that Pilate would be that noble. He's actually kind of, a, kind of a bad guy, if you look at other accounts of history. It could be that he's just trying to upset the, the Jewish leaders, that if he knows that they want one thing, what, what doesn't this happen in our politics all the time? Okay, I'm going to take the other side. Just because you want that, I'm going to say this. This, this could be what's happening. We actually don't know, uh, but it's kind of interesting, and Pilate suggests that maybe Jesus should be released. But the chief priests, remember, in the first verse, they, they got together and they planned. They stirred up the crowds to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. They plant that seed in the crowd, and Barabbas is the one that's demanded to be released. What shall I do then with the one who you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. So this took a dramatic turn from release Barabbas to crucify Jesus. Pilate is kind of shocked. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And this has turned into a mob mentality now, it seems. Crucify him, crucify him. And so, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is a tough part of the story of Jesus headed towards the cross. It's a tough part of the story because we see in this story that um, Jesus is sentenced to what kind of death he's going to die. And, and that is hard. That's hard for us to see. Obviously, 
us here, we, we love Jesus, and it's hard to see this. So, so what do we do with this? Do we, do we acknowledge that this happened, and then we, we move on and hope that Easter get here, gets here soon so we can then celebrate the resurrection? You're like, man, you're going to make me come back for two more weeks to... Well, actually, I think what's really valuable is if we can just sit with this scripture a little longer. And I think if we can sit with it a little longer... We move from kind of a general acknowledgement that this happened, and maybe, uh, maybe we have a little bit of a thanksgiving that look what Jesus has done for us, but maybe we can even move to a place of saying, oh my gosh, this is not just a little bit of a sad thing. This is a grave injustice, possibly the greatest act of injustice the world has ever seen. Think about this. The Son of God, the most innocent and perfect being to ever walk the earth, is falsely accused and sentenced to be crucified. That is not just a little bad, you guys. That is a grave injustice. And I think if we sit with this text a little longer, then we have to wrestle with this. Who is responsible for the greatest injustice the world has ever seen? The sentencing of the Son of God to die a shameful, humiliating, painful, awful death. I think we have to ask that question. So who killed the Son of God? And let, let's go through. I made a little list for us. Pilate. Pilate, um, maybe out of cowardice or maybe out of being a political, politically savvy guy and knowing he didn't want to riot on his hands, he eventually gives the word. I mean, it's his authority, right? He's the decision maker. We could point our fingers at Pilate and, and the Romans, right? The Roman guards carry out the execution we could. We could very easily point our fingers at Pilate. But I don't think Pilate alone is responsible for this. Who else? Well, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. We could point our fingers at them. They certainly had some forethought in this, right? This was premeditated. Um, a nighttime trial, um, bribing people to give up Jesus' location and show who he was so they could arrest him, and, and then uh, trumping up uh, false accusations, stirring up the crowd. There's, there's a lot of guilt on the chief priests and the religious leaders, right? I think we need to acknowledge there is a lot of, of, uh, of blame on this group. Sometimes in history, people have used this to justify anti-Semitism, which, which is an awful misunderstanding of the scriptures, that it would be only on one people group that the responsibility for the killing of the Son of God falls. That would be an awful misinterpretation of the Bible. We also see there, there's the crowd, Right? Now, maybe we could say the crowd just kind of went along with it. They started with, let's let Barabbas, let Barabbas go free. And, and they ended, though, with crucify, crucify. I don't, I don't think you get off easy because you got caught up in the crowd. I think you're still responsible for your actions, right? There's an interesting hymn that I came across a few years ago. Um, it's actually one of my favorites um, and, and I just came across the words. It's by a Scottish hymn writer in the 1800s named, uh, I think it's Horatius Bonar. And he wrote a hymn about being a spectator at these events. 
I want to show you the, the text of the first verse of that hymn right here. I see the crowd in Pilate's hall. I mark their wrathful mien. Their shouts of crucify appall with blasphemy between. He's really capturing the, the awfulness of the crowd, right? But watch this, this next part. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Ooh. He's looking at the crowd, demanding that Jesus, the Son of God, be crucified. And he suddenly becomes aware that he is actually one of the people in the crowd. If we're going to ask ourselves, where do we locate ourselves in the story? I think we have to acknowledge, as sinful people, we, we are part of the crowd. We, many of us would love to think that if we were put in the same situation, we might choose better. We might not make the same mistakes. But we share in the same sin and sinfulness that led the crowd to demand that Barabbas go free instead of Jesus. That led the crowd to become bloodthirsty and yell, crucify. The part of this story that's, that's so difficult but so essential is we have to acknowledge we are complicit in the death of Jesus. And bearing responsibility for that. Um, John Stott is a theologian that has wrote a, a great book on the cross of Christ. And he says this. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross, wrote Canon Peter Green, may claim his share in its grace. Only the person who's prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim their share in its grace. And my friends, that might be the hard part, right? We don't like bearing responsibility in the guilt of the cross. But I want to tell you why it's important. It's important because it makes a way for us to follow a path towards repentance. And there's a part of repentance that this especially kind of brought up for me as an important part of the repentant process. It's a part of repentance called heartfelt contrition. Everyone say that with me, heartfelt contrition. And what it, what it really is, is it's when your heart and how you feel about your sin uh, is true to what you're saying about your sin. So it's like when my son gets in trouble for hitting his sister and I say, Everett, you need to tell Abigail sorry. And he says, sorry. And, and he's clearly not sorry. And I have to, you know, we have to talk. Hey, buddy, um, I need you to actually mean it. And so he'll get his best, sorry. <laughs> and I know, you know, we all know, like, he, he, he probably doesn't mean it as much as I wished he did. And, but that's actually... That's probably how God looks at us sometimes. We might mumble through a prayer of confession. We might admit sometimes, yeah, I didn't do the right thing. A part of the repentant process is feeling the weight of our sin and knowing that our sin grieves God's heart and letting that break our heart also. King David models this for us in Psalm 51. After he starts to feel the weight of his sin, 
uh, after uh, having Bathsheba's husband killed in battle, um, he says this in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So he's acknowledging the way his sin grieves God's heart. That leads him to grieve for his own sin and then make him more willing to walk away from his sin and toward God. Later in that psalm, what we see is the result of grieving your sin, of that heartfelt contrition. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. When we have a true heartfelt sorrow about our sin, then our hearts are able to break in a way where we bring our broken hearts to the foot of the cross, and that actually allows God to begin to put us back together. It's when we let our hearts break about the weight of our sin that we also get to acknowledge the other place we find ourselves in the story. I'm going to go back and remind you about this part of the story, that if you go to that second line, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder. At the end of this story, Barabbas walks free, and Jesus goes to the cross. The crazy thing about this is, they are trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is an insurrectionist that is a danger to the empire. But we know he's innocent. Barabbas, who's actually an insurrectionist and has shown that he is a danger to the empire, gets absolved of his sin and Jesus takes his place. And I think it's when we see the weight of our sin and then we see that God substitutes himself for us, that's when we see the depth of the mercy and grace of God in such a clear way. This is, in other parts of Scripture, too, uh, it's shown in some amazing ways. I love the book of Romans, and if you look, Romans 1, 2, and 3 builds up a big case for why there is sin in humanity, and there's no other way to deal with it and to right things with God. Paul makes this big statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's all-encompassing. It's everyone. That's not the end of his message. Because then he launches into this. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When we understand the depth of our sin, that's when we can also understand the bigness of God's grace. He says it a different way in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our place. It's the great exchange. And he takes our sinfulness to the cross. We get to walk away, not just free of our sin, but we get to have Jesus' righteousness in our lives. This is an amazing thing to behold Um, And yes, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's so important that we would draw near to the events leading up to the cross 
to sit with the scriptures long enough to let God remind us what's true about ourselves and what is so true about what Jesus has done for us. And I think that prepares us to truly celebrate what Christ has done for us in his death and his resurrection. To close, I want to read the, the closing words, the final words of that hymn. Um, as Horatius Bonar uh, finishes this hymn, it turns towards worship. "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet, not the less that blood avails to cleanse away my sin." And not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so thankful that you give us this story uh, in the form of the scriptures uh, to sit with, to meditate on, to, to let it wash over us. God, I, th I thank you that you allow us to admit the depth of our sin without that being the end of the story, and that you have given your very self for our sake to bring us back to you. Lord, help us to see this day the bigness of your grace and your mercy for us and stir our hearts to draw near to you, our crucified Savior, um, who loves us so much more than we can imagine. Stir our hearts to worship you today, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.